Welcome, everybody, to Radius Church. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, my name is Kyle Graw, and uh, I'll be bringing the message this morning. Um, the message we're going to bring is from Psalm 128, and it's a, it's a message that is uh, very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's a message that has been um, working on my heart and in my life for over uh, three years now. Um, and alongside uh, supporting scripture, uh, Psalm 128, uh, transform my pain into purpose. It reframed my adversity by using my pain, my past experiences, my talents, my passions, and my gifting to glorify Christ and advance his kingdom, um, which is how I ended up at the Dream Center. So before this message comes to you, um, just know that the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, Dr. Tony Evans punched me first, um, and I took it like a G, so you're going to have to suck it up, buttercup, okay, because it's coming at you as well uh, today. Um, before we dig into this passage, let's, uh, let's pray it up. Father, we're just thankful for your word. Thank you that it's holy and true. Uh, we're just thankful for the truth of Scripture and how you give us instructions in a, in a perfect design to follow um, and live out. Um, and when we follow your design, Father, it works. Um, and we just pray over this passage. May it be um, your words that, that come out and not mine, Father, and the, the words of Scripture. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So gospel impact, how the gospel uh, transforms a nation. So let's go to Psalm 128. We can bring it up here. So I'm going to be using my notes today. I put all the passages in here. Typically I would have a Bible, but there's, we're going to be kind of moving and shaking quite a bit here. Um, so for the sake of time, I just put everything right here. I also don't have a little Bible like, like Reagan has here, this little guy that he, you know, opens up. My, my Bible's a little bigger and probably won't fit on this thing here. So, uh, <clears throat> is it coming? Meanwhile, you guys can get on your phones and in your Bibles and turn to Psalm 128. We'll see if Corey can, ah, there we go. All right. So verse 1 through 4. How happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You will surely eat what your hands have worked for. You will be happy and it will go well for you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive trees around your table. In this very way, the man who fears the Lord will be blessed. May the Lord bless you from Zion, so that you will see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And will see your children's children. Peace be with Israel. So I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm a little bit sick of politics. Amen? And as soon as I said that word, you all were triggered and got your defense shields up, along with your argument gun loaded, and you were ready to shoot at each other already. And I think we're all tired of it. And truth is, we all know in our hearts that politics is not the answer. On one side, we have Donald Trump, who hijacked the Christian conservative base in the likeness of an early church Roman emperor named Constantine, who allowed Christians to worship and evangelize in exchange for power, all while he himself worshiped the sun god. Have you ever heard of Paula White? Anyone here heard of Paula White? Paula White is a heretical, prosperity-preaching, health and wealth so a seed pastor who just happens to be Donald Trump's top spiritual advisor. You may believe in his policies, but let's not go as far to call him a Christian. On the other side of the spectrum, we have Joe Biden, who hijacked the social justice movement in exchange for votes while simultaneously supporting Planned Parenthood. Have you heard of Margaret Sanger? 
She is the founder of Planned Parenthood who strategically put abortion clinics in African-American communities for the purpose, in her words, to eliminate the race. Still today, the number one aborted baby in America is the African-American baby. And so as soon as you realize that Republicans and Democrats are sleeping in the same bed on different sides of the spectrum, the sooner you realize that both are out for the same thing, money, power, and control. So what is the point of bringing this all up? So now that you're all triggered, um, in the words of Nasir Jones and Sean Puffy Combs, you can hate me now. But, but I won't stop now. That's right. Here we go. Okay. So what is the point of bringing this all up? The point is our political persuasion will never bring long-lasting systemic change. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. So how do we impact the nation for the gospel? I believe that God has given us a structure for transforming a nation, and it starts with kingdom men and kingdom women submitting every area of their lives under the authority of Christ and his holy word. So let's take a, a look at verse 1 and 2 here. So verse 1 and 2, How happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You will surely eat what your hands have worked for. You will be happy, and it will go well for you. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means that you have a reverence for God that leads to obedience. The Bible teaches that there are indeed blessings that come from obeying Christ and his word. Following God's design works. When you live outside of God's design, that's called sin. And even when you sin, and when you sin, there are negative consequences in your life that make it harder and sometimes miserable. But when you submit every area of your life under the authority of Christ and his word, then things will go well with you. Now, I want to make note here that it's specifically talking about consequences that we ourselves have caused. Okay? Not a storm in our life that is outside of our control or something that has happened to us by someone else. I also want to note that if you are a Christian, we are all in the process of God redeeming our sin and using it for good. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So what does it mean to walk in his ways? This means obedience. It means to follow and live out God's design for how we are to live our lives. If you look back at Genesis 3, you will see that it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to disobey God and go outside of his design. It happened fairly quick. But how did it begin? Well, let's go back, way back, back in the time. And Adam starts singing, right? Don't leave me, girl. We all know that. You guys remember that? All right, Genesis 3.1, let's go. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now I want you to look at something. See these words right here? I'm going to come over here. Lord God. Okay? In, in chapter 2, you're going to see that those two words together, all of chapter 2. The Lord God did this. The Lord God did that. The Lord God did this. The Lord God did that. Okay? It's going to be used over and over to describe God's relational name. This name is Yahweh and holds with it a sense of authority and rulership. So you see what Satan does here? He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And right when you see that, you got to go, hold up. Okay? And you got to use your Nate Dog voice when you do that. Okay? You have to. So you got to say, hold up. 
Okay, for us theologians out there, this is a great hermeneutic tool for when there's a glitch in the matrix or something changed up, okay? Did God really say, what, what did he forget? What did he forget to use? He forgot to call him Lord God. That's right. He strips God of his name, Lord God, and then questions his word. In other words, he strips him of his authority and rulership and makes his word optional. And I'll tell you what, Satan loves to have lukewarm Christians, okay, who don't have him as Lord of their life in every area of their life, in every choice, in every decision, and what they watch and what they listen to and what they hear, who they hang out with. He loves Christians who don't live in obedience. Why is that? Because Christians living in disobedience will not, will not be effective in glorifying God in advance in the kingdom. Living outside of God's design is sin, and sin leads to death literally and figuratively and spiritually. So changing a nation begins with gospel transformation in ourselves through obedience to God's holy word. He is the final authority in every area of our lives. Is he the final authority in every area of our lives? And that's a question we've got to ask ourselves. If the answer is no, Then we need to confess, repent, turn from our sin, and get back into proper alignment under the Lord God. When we are in proper fellowship with God, we maximize our gifting to glorify Christ and advance his kingdom through the power of the gospel. So you may be asking, how do I stay in constant fellowship with God? That's a great question. The answer is through confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, turning from your sin, and abiding in Christ through his word and prayer on a regular basis. So let's look at John 15, 4 through 8. We're going to talk a little bit about abiding. We got 4 through 8. They just put that. We can keep it at 6. That's fine. Yep, there we go, there we go. Remain in me and I in you just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Let's go verse six. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch And he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove uh, to be my disciples. Now, a lot of people think this passage means that you can lose your salvation. It does not. He's actually talking to Christians. It's about sanctification and the power you have when staying attached to the vine. Let's turn to Galatians 5, 22 through uh, 26. I always like to connect Galatians 5 and John 15 because it just makes sense to me when we talk about fruit. Let's go to uh, verse 22. Do we have that? Maybe, Maybe Hamilton can sing it for us. What do you got, Hamilton? It's hammer time. Let it go. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified the flesh, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that flesh means our old person. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying or envying one another. And that's what it means to abide. When we abide in Christ through prayer and the reading of his word, we activate the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you probably heard the phrase before, filled up. We've heard that a lot. Or a prayer asking the Holy Spirit to show up. You've probably heard that a lot. But technically speaking, once you receive Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in, and Ephesians 1.13 says you were sealed which means that you cannot lose it. It doesn't come and go. It doesn't show up or show out. If there's believers in the building with activated Holy Spirit because they're attached to the vine, then the Holy Spirit is there. It's there. But because of our sin, it can become deactivated, so to speak. So we keep the Spirit activated in us through abiding in Christ. This is what John 15 means when he says to stay attached to the vine. The vine is Christ. And when we abide, we bear fruit. And as we saw, Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what we will see in Psalm 128 is that when a kingdom man is living in obedience to God and his word, it will naturally flow into his marriage and into his family. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like young olive trees around your table. In this very way, the man who fears the Lord will be blessed. Notice we see fears the Lord again. Okay, that's a key component to obedience. The foundation of a spiritually healthy family begins with a spiritually healthy man obeying the Lord, abiding in him, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. If you're married and have family, men, you are responsible for the spiritual condition of your wife. This has been a part of God's design since the very beginning. So let's look at Genesis 3, 6 through 12. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave, uh, gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Next one. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. At the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Okay, so a few things here we need to see. One, we see a passive male not stepping up and leading his wife in obedience to God's word. How do we know this? Because the passage says that after Eve bit the apple, she gave it to Adam, who was standing right next to her. And what Adam do? We could just picture that happening in the garden, right? Wife has the Eve has the apple, right? Getting ready to bite. She looks over her husband. Should I eat it? Well, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. Does it taste good? Can I have some? Right? Just kind of hanging out. It seems as if Adam was more concerned about his wife's happiness over obeying the Lord God's word. If you're a married man here today, you understand this. Hun, where do you want to go eat? I don't care. Where do you want to go eat? Well, Chick-fil-A is God's chicken. I want a burger. You want a burger? All right, we'll go to Red Robin. Here we go. 
That's just a made-up story. Both of us actually don't like Chick-fil-A. Um, that probably just took our Christian card, but uh, we're not big Chick-fil-A fans. We are burger, um, burger people. But notice in verse 8, what returned? Do you see that? Lord God came back. Lord God came back into the picture. <clears throat> Notice that God's authority and rulership is back in verse 8. And have you ever wondered why it was Eve who ate the apple, but it was the Lord God who went after Adam in the garden? Why? Because he was held responsible. Why is it? Why was Adam held responsible? It's because Adam was called to lead and is responsible for the condition, the spiritual condition of his wife. Paul backs this up in Romans 5 as well. So we see it at the very beginning, God's design. And we go to Romans 5, and Paul states pretty much the same thing. So let's go to Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sin, in fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. It says Adam's transgression, right? doesn't say Eve. It doesn't say them. It says Adam. Paul says here that sin came in the world through Adam's transgression. What is Adam's transgression? The answer is he didn't lead his wife in obedience to God's word. In fact, when the Lord God calls him out, he replies with, well, it was the woman you gave me. Doesn't that sound like a typical man in today's day? Right? Lord God comes to the garden. He points to Adam. He's like, dude, what happened? It was, it was a woman you gave me. The creator of the universe. That's how he's talking to the creator of the universe. He said, it was the woman. First, he blames the woman. And then he blames God. Just a man full of blame and excuses. Sounds like a lot of men today, doesn't it? Personally, I think outside the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that men are naturally passive and women are naturally more willing to take charge. We really see this all the time in community. And this is what Genesis 3.16 is all about. God is helping make his design function the way he wants to. Let's go to Genesis 3.16. Should be the next slide. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. This passage here means that a woman's natural leaning is going to be to rule over her husband. And as we've already seen, man's natural leaning is to be passive. As a coach, I know just how difficult it is to have two alpha dogs, right? But for a team to be successful... For a team to be successful, one of them must voluntarily give up their status. This is why the Chicago Bulls in the 90s were so good. It was because Scottie Pippen was the greatest helper of all time in NBA history. Married men, that word helper in Genesis 2 means that you cannot fulfill God's will in your life without your wife. Michael Jordan doesn't win without Scotty, and men, you won't win without Betty. And Paul echoes this in Ephesians 5. Let's go to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Married men in here, really everybody, I know everybody was probably triggered and ears went up when you heard the word submit. But man, this has nothing to do with your ego. Ladies, you are to voluntarily, voluntarily, voluntarily submit to your husband. And that is under the understanding that it is as to the Lord. That phrase, as to the Lord, means that if a man isn't following Christ as his head, that woman does not have to follow her husband as her head. If he's out of whack... Here's God, here's husband, here's, here's a wife. If man is out of whack, kind of goes like this. Next one up, okay? Now, Paul says later in 1 Corinthians that you can, from a missional standpoint, still operate in that realm as a woman for the hopes of seeing that man come to know Jesus as a ministry to him. If there's not a man, it's next person up. Men, you are to unconditionally and sacrificially lay down your life for your wife as Christ laid down his life for the church. You are to lead her spiritually. This is what Paul means in verse 26, by to make her holy, with a cleansing, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Men, you will have to present your wife to Christ. This is what verse 27 and 28 means. You will be held accountable for how you loved your wife and led her spiritually. We will meet Jesus one day, men who are married, and we will be held accountable for the spiritual condition of our wife and family. 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter has some great advice for us husbands out there. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker partner, showing them his honor as co-heirs of grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. This passage right here is a game changer. And some of you went straight to the words weaker partner, right? Because today's society probably triggered you into that. Um, seeing that weaker partner, you're like, whoa, ears up, ears up, but... Really, that phrase right there doesn't matter in comparison to that last phrase. So that your prayers won't be hindered. Fellas, if you don't love your wife the way Christ loves the church, unconditionally, sacrificially laying down your life for her as Christ laid it down his life for us, then you might as well not even pray because God ain't hearing you. If your prayers are hindered, your ministry absolutely will fail. Ladies, this is just how important you are to Christ and your husband. You have power, you have value, and you have more influence than you can ever imagine. You are your husband's helper, and he cannot fulfill God's will for the family without you. Dr. Sarita Lyons had this to say about the word helper in Scripture. Women's role as an Easer, which is a Hebrew word for helper, does not imply, does not imply inferiority or subordination. It refers to her ability to aid the man with military-like strength, act as a rescuer, and help in a way that God helps his people. Women should draw strength from the matriarchs in the faith and use them as examples of how to live out this powerful calling. 
It seems as if Ephesians 5.32 seems to state that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, unified as one for the purpose of glorifying Christ and advancing his kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very purpose of marriage is unity through mission. Most marital problems come from a husband and a wife not having a purpose bigger than themselves. They are overly concerned with their happiness, careers, money, preferences, and rights. The purpose of marriage is not happiness. The purpose of marriage is to glorify Christ and advance the kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their first missionary journey is their kids. Moving on to the children, we'll go to Psalm 128, 3 through 4. Back a little bit. Three and four. There we go. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like young olive trees around your table. In this very way, the man who fears the Lord will be blessed. As we circle back to verse 3, your children will be like olive trees around your table. When a man submits every area of his life under the authority of Christ and his word, he needs to share that with his children. When the man leads his children in the word, his children will be like olive trees, which basically means a blessing. Now, is it only the man who can teach the word to the children? No, that's not what it's saying. But should the man be stepping up and leading his family? Yeah, he should. Absolutely. So gospel submission transforms a man, which transforms a marriage, which transforms a family. The number one way to raise up healthy children is through a healthy marriage. There is much data out there that supports this claim. Go ahead and Google it. And I think we've even seen that in our family. We've changed over the last two or three years to where we've, we'll tell our kids, Elijah and Layla, you guys will hear us say, you're not as important as my wife. And that's not devaluing them at all. But the marriage comes first. Without the marriage... There are no children. And if the marriage breaks, so do the children. And we know what divorce does to children. We've seen it. We also know God is in the business of redeeming and turning our mess into a masterpiece, right? So he's in that business. That's who we have as our Savior. And so what does discipleship in the home look like? For me, it was my grandpa outside. I'd go over and mow his lawn, and uh, he'd call me in after, Kyle, come here, come here. And he'd hand me a, you know, caffeine-free diet, 7-Up, as, you know, old people do. So I'm sitting there at the house with a caffeine-free diet, 7-Up, and he'd take me to the Bible. Kyle, look at this, look at this. This is the rapture. This is where... And that's really where I started having a really love for the scriptures, is what my grandpa. And every time I would come over, he would, I'd mow the lawn or do something for him at the, around the house, and he'd pull me down in the basement, pull out his Bible, and sit down with me and teach me the word. My mom, okay, so when I was in middle school and high school, um, I wasn't fully sanctified at that time, as you can probably guess, as... Middle school and high schoolers were, and my mom's waking me up to go to church every, every Sunday, and I hated it. I hated it. Not because I hated church, because I just wanted to sleep till one, you know? I just wanted to sleep. I liked going to church. It wasn't an issue. But my mom kept dragging me up, dragging me up, dragging me to church, dragging me to church, and I probably wouldn't have made a decision to come back to the Lord late in high school if it wasn't for um, that. Another picture of discipleship. So you see like young olive trees around the table. 
one of the great ways to teach your children about Christ and his word is around the table. Now, it's not just around the table, okay? It's a relational living, walking with the children, walking with anybody in ministry, right? So you see Jesus walking with his disciples, okay? And he talked about God while walking, while on a mount, in other areas, but he didn't go. Jesus didn't say this, okay? Walking. James, give me my table so I can preach. Did he? No. You don't need a table to teach your kids or your disciples about Jesus and the word. Sometimes it happens in car rides. Sometimes it just happens with living life with them. Moving on to Psalm 128.5, the church. Now Psalm 128.5, may the Lord bless you from Zion so that you will see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. So what is Zion? So I'm going to steal from Dr. Tony Evans on this one because he's a lot smarter. The name Zion was used in the Old Testament to describe either the city of Jerusalem or the holy temple within it. But in the New Testament, the church is a temple of God. See 2 Corinthians 6.16, Ephesians 2.21. And Christians are said to come worship at Mount Zion. Hebrews 12.22. Thus, for believers, Zion refers to the church, God's people. The purpose of the church is unity through mission. We just recently finished a series on this, so I won't spend too much time on it. But John 17 states that our unity as a body will show the glory of God to a lost world. But how do we unify when we live in a culture of so much division? And Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Verse, verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. And be thankful. I love that phrase right there. Because it just randomly shows up. Like, rule your hearts and, the, and be thankful. Right? Because humans are naturally negative. Aren't we? And you can't have a negative mindset. We can't physically have a negative mindset. And be thankful and feel gratitude at the same time. They don't, they don't coexist. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. See what Christ says here? What, what, sorry, what Paul says here in verse 13? We are to forgive others because Christ has first forgiven us. If Christ laid down his life for us, how much more should we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ? And let me remind you, Jesus also died for his enemies. So you may be asking, what if that person has never apologized to me? The answer is this. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin. He even died on the cross for the sin that we don't even know we committed. We all have sin in our life that we have not confessed or repented for yet because the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed us to us yet or we're just refused to listen. And Christ still forgives us and died on the cross for it. So how much more should we forgive our family in Christ? And the motivation behind this forgiveness is not just because Christ died on the cross for our sin and we should lay down our lives. The motivation is in John 17 
that we would be unified so a lost world would look at us and see something different. And if we're not willing to humble ourselves and confess our sin, apologize, confront, we don't have a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. And if we don't have a purpose that's bigger bigger than ourselves, then the kingdom is not going to be advanced. Because we're too focused on, on us and not the mission. The mission and the purpose has to be bigger than ourselves. Let's move on to the community. Healthy men flow into healthy families, which flow into healthy churches, which will result in healthy communities. This is what the psalm means when it says, and you may see the good of Jerusalem. Let's go ahead and go back to Psalm 128, 5. So we can see that up there. And so you may see the good of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was their community. So Jerusalem was Dubuque. Okay. Did you know that the number one way to get people out of poverty is through marriage? A two-income home has financial benefits. We even see that in the stay-at-home mom in Proverbs 31 benefited the family financially through selling goods. Did you know that the number one way to stop abortion is through teaching biblical principles about marriage and sex in our community? This is exactly the mission of the Dubuque Clarity Clinic. If we can get men in the community to get saved, submit their lives to Christ and his word, and put a ring on that little lady, the abortion rates would plummet. Because abortions typically happen outside of marriage. Doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if people get saved and submit their lives to the holy word of God and follow God's design, a lot of the issues we have would naturally take care of itself. Men, you are called to lead in all four areas, all four spheres of influence. First, yourself, abiding in Christ and his holy word. Then your family, your church, and your community. In our realm, we seem to have made marriage and family an idol. As in that the peak of the Christian experience is getting married. But the very purpose of family is to reflect God and advance the kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a city on a hill, a light in the darkness, your very own mini church, if you will, And God also calls us through the prophet Isaiah in the book of James to be a father to the fatherless, take care of the widows and the orphans, pursue justice and correct the oppressor by going out and making disciples of all nations. One of the best ways we can do that in our community is through the Dubuque Clarity Clinic or the Dubuque Dream Center right here. So what kind of legacy will you leave? Let's go to Psalm 128.6. Verse 6. It'll be the last verse as we close. There we go. May the Lord bless you from Zion so that you will see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life and you will see your children's children. Peace be with Israel. That means you're leaving a legacy. So what kind of legacy are we leaving our children, our children in the community? Because a God-fearing man decided to step it up, not be passive, and lead like Christ leads the church, blessings and prosperity will see your children's children. So you might be feeling like this is a lot of responsibility. And if there is no man in the picture, ladies, you're up. You step in. And I want you to know that we have all failed in this way, shape or form. 
This is a structure for God's perfect design of the gospel impact through the family. However, God is in the redemption business. We all fall short in this. God covers us. His grace is enough to cover our shortcomings, and we are all in the process of God turning our mess into a masterpiece. So some of these questions you might have. What if I'm not married? That's probably one you've been saying like the whole passage, right? What if I'm not married? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that you just have much more time and much more opportunity to impact the world for Christ, okay? In fact, Paul actually encourages them not to get married. He says, you know, if you're married, you gotta be worried about the things of this world. If you're not married, you can go out and serve the Lord all day, every day, Right? So our our American culture has put an idol on this marriage and family idea. So in this passage, for those who aren't married, you can just kind of skip that marriage and family part and go straight to the impact through the church and through the community. You can serve the church a whole heck of a lot more than you can if you're married. You can serve the community a whole heck of a lot more if you're not married. So it gives you the opportunity to obey, abide, bear fruit in your church and community for gospel transforma- transformation. In your singleness, you could adopt, do foster care, work or volunteer at the Clarity Clinic or a Dream Center. These are some great, amazing ways to use your singleness to glorify Christ and advance his kingdom through the gospel. Another question may be, what if I have sinned in my past? Romans 8.1 says, you are no longer condemned. If you have confessed your sin, repented, and turned from it, you are no longer condemned. In Romans 8, 28, as we stated at the beginning, even past sin can be redeemed and used for the glory of God and the purpose of his will. If you are a Christian here today, you have a purpose that is bigger than yourself. And I want to turn to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And this is... In closing, one of the most important verses you're going to want to memorize, you're going to want to keep near you. Most of you probably have already heard it before. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do that word workmanship right there is a fun word it means masterpiece which means that your deepest pain all the trauma your experiences your gifting your talent and your passions all work together for good for those who are called to his purpose This is what Ephesians 2.10 means. Your purpose in life is to glorify God and advance the kingdom. When you become a Christian, you don't have to ask what my purpose is. He already gives it to you. You get saved, and then you have a purpose. You have a workman. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You don't have to ask. Lord, what's your will for my life? What's my purpose? Well, what's your passions? What have you been through? What's your experiences? What's your talents? What's your gifting? God wants to use all of that to glorify himself and advance his kingdom. One day, you will meet Jesus and he will ask you, what'd you do with the gifts and talents that I gave you? Ephesians 1 says that you have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That means you have everything you need in order to glorify Christ and advance his kingdom through the power of the gospel in your home, in your church, in your, com- in your community, and this is your purpose as a Christian. And lastly, you were chosen, created and saved for a purpose and destined to be great. Genesis 1 tells us that you were created in the image of God. God is the greatest thing 
that we can possibly conceive in our mind. He is the very definition of great. And we are made in his image, which means we were literally born for the purpose of reflecting greatness in everything that we do. For the purpose of glorifying God and advancing his kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look in the gospels, you remember when uh, I think it's James and John were arguing about who wants to be the greatest, right? And what Jesus respond with. Well, if you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to lead, you got to serve. But he never, ever goes in on them for wanting to be great, does he? He wants you to be great just according to his will. For the purpose of glorifying God and advancing his kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Family, it's time to get to work. It's time to confess our sin, repent, and turn from our sins. Submit every area of your life under the authority of Christ and his word. Abide in Christ as the vine and bear fruit that flows out into your marriage, your church, and your community. Gospel transformation of a nation begins with gospel transformation of an individual. You can make it. Your pain has purpose. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, you were created and saved to do this and destined to be great. So my challenge to you guys is to go out into the world and reflect greatness. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for um, just this message that you've been stirring in me for, for three years now. And we just pray that this message can help others find their purpose in life and find their will for, for following you, Father, and, and their gifts, their talents, their pain, um, their trauma, their everything that they've been through holistically, that you are in the business of redeeming and using it for your glory, Father, redeeming it all, turning our, our deepest pain into our greatest purpose. Father, we're thankful for you, thankful for all that you give to us, um, and I pray a covering over everybody here in the church and their families as we go into next week. In Jesus' name, amen.